We'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you haven't already. And we'll be reading starting in verse 29. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 starting in verse 29. If you need a Bible, they're under the chairs in front of you. And you'll find 1 Corinthians 15 on page 1,153 in those Bibles. 1,153. So I'll give you just a moment to turn there. I'll turn there myself and then I'll read it before I do much of an introduction. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 29, you'll notice that it starts in the middle of a thought. It's a thought that's been continuing all of chapter 15 about the resurrection, defending the resurrection, the need for the resurrection, and it continues that in verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We... Uh, here at UBC, we, we try to be careful with how we discuss different uh, religious groups, um, kind of Sunday morning as we're talking through the Bible, uh, because most of the time it's, it's not necessary. We just focus on what the Bible teaches. We read through a passage like this. We explain it and apply it. It's not necessary to maybe go into details for how others might disagree and uh, how it might be important to, to them. But sometimes it's almost unavoidable. A passage is so central to another group's practice, uh, so central to their teaching, that it's almost awkward to not talk about it. And, and this passage, as you might expect, is one such passage. Uh, can't drive anywhere in our community right now without looking up on the hillside and seeing the large uh, LDS temple being built, right? The large Mormon temple. And one major thing that takes place at those temples, and will at this one when it's open, is the baptism for the dead. As faithful Mormons are baptized by proxy kind of in the place of others who have died, and they believe that that gives those people who have already died a chance to hear and respond to the LDS plan of salvation. And if you were to talk to a Mormon about that, this is the verse they're going to go to in the Bible. And they'll, they'll open up here and they'll say, see, it says baptism for the dead. And so it's reasonable for us then to interact with that. And I want to do so, I hope fairly, uh, but I want to want to interact with that kind of squarely. And like I said, I feel like it would sort of be an elephant in the room not to acknowledge that with this passage. If you are LDS and you're here this morning, perhaps somebody invited you, I'm so glad you're here. Um, and I hope that you'll find this helpful if you've ever wondered, why don't Christians take this the same way you do? You know, you see the words here and you think, well, why don't they practice that? I I hope this will answer some of those questions for you. Uh, If you're just a part of this body and maybe you interact with LDS friends and neighbors and especially as the temple's being built and maybe you have some ask you about it or talk to you about it and you've maybe scratched your head, not quite sure how to take this passage, I hope this is helpful for you. If you're also just reading through it and you come to this and you think, I don't know what to do with this. I hope this answers some of those questions. I want to point out that this is right here in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15. 
And so if you're here for the first time this Sunday and you wonder, man, why are we just like, you know, focusing on that? Is it because is it the temple's being built? Why are, why are Christians talking about this? We're just teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been here since September, and this is just kind of where we're at now. It's just the next passage. This is a resurrection chapter. So I want you to note that before we even get kind of into the, the details of this. This is a resurrection chapter. The whole chapter, all 58 verses, really revolves around it. So if you hear 1 Corinthians 13, and you might think love, right? That's the great chapter on love. I hope, as we continue to march through this, in the future, if you hear 1 Corinthians 15, you think resurrection. Because that's what it's about. It shows how the resurrection is central to the gospel. As Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose on the third day. We saw that in the first 11 verses. It goes on to talk about how our faith would crumble without the resurrection of Christ. And then as we saw last week, it uses that, this understanding of the resurrection of Christ, as a model for how we will be resurrected in the future. And it's going to continue to build on that. So these verses come right in the middle of all that discussion already on the resurrection. And it's really, in these few verses here, it gives three implications, three realities, if you will, of if the resurrection is true, how it should impact daily life. Three things that are somewhat unrelated from each other other than the centrality of the resurrection for each one. So, with all that in mind, let's wade into this first one and the one that is going to take the most of our time because it is important in our community. Verse 29 that talks about the baptism for the dead, I think the big idea of that verse and where it fits within the rest is that the resurrection justifies our hope. It's in there as a passage to talk about our hope, our future hope, and how that impacts our present practice. We need to acknowledge that it is a somewhat difficult verse to interpret. There's perhaps as many as 40 different interpretations of this one verse. That doesn't mean there is no hope for finding a correct interpretation. It doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. It just means we have to acknowledge some of the difficulties of it. We'll end up looking at what I think are four potential ways to interpret it, and I'll argue for one in particular. But these different ideas all revolve around how we take the word for. It's amazing that one small word makes such a big difference. How do we take the word for? The Greek word behind that is the word huper. And just like our English word for, it has a whole range of meanings. And so the context has to help determine that. And we see that with our English word for. You know, if I tell you that I'm going to go to the store for my mom, what does that mean? It could mean that I'm going on behalf of my mom, right? She can't go, so I'm going for her, on her behalf, in her place. Uh, it could also mean I'm going to get something for her, to benefit her in some way. She wants me to go get something for her, so I go get that for her. I'm going to the store for her in that way. Uh, it, it could also be used in uh, kind of the idea of, you know, to get. I'm going to the store for milk, right? It's a slightly different idea of the word for. I'm going to get milk. Or, if I forgot my wallet and I shoplift that milk, I might get arrested for shoplifting, right? That means because of shoplifting. It, so this, whole, this one word can be taken several different ways. What's well, the same thing here when it says those who are baptized 
for the dead. What does that mean? What does it mean that they were baptized for? Is it in behalf of them? Is it because of them? Is it some benefit for them? What does it mean? So we'll look at four different options outside of the LDS view. We'll come back to that in a moment. But four different options for what it could mean. This is a good opportunity, though, to remind us of a key principle in interpreting the Bible. And when we interpret the Bible, we take unclear passages in light of clear passages, not the opposite way. So we come to a passage like this that's brief. It's one verse. It's not a concept repeated elsewhere. It could be taken different ways. We don't want to build a whole system on that. We go to clear passages that talk about baptism, that talk about the gospel, talk about different things, and we use that to help interpret something that is unclear. Okay? So with those previews in mind, let's walk through four potential options for how we could take it, and I'll end up arguing for one that I lean towards, but we hold it kind of loosely. Four main, four main views on what this is referring to. First could be that for just simply means on behalf of dead believers. This would be a view similar to the LDS view in that it's being baptized on behalf of somebody else who has died. But it's not going the same direction that, that the LDS church would take it. It's just to say that this was perhaps a practice that was happening in Corinth where somebody came to Christ, died before they could be baptized... And somebody in Corinth was being baptized for them, on their behalf. So they had trusted in Christ on their own, but died before they were able to be baptized. So somebody's baptized in their place, on their behalf in some way. And that is a potential here. If that's the case, what we'd be saying is that Paul's not necessarily even condoning this, saying that this is a right practice, this is something we should do. He's just saying, this is what you're doing. And it's inconsistent if you don't think there's a resurrection. Remember, that's the big argument in this whole chapter is, is there a resurrection? They're saying, that's ah, not that big of a deal if it's going to happen. He's already gone through several reasons why the resurrection's real, why it's necessary. And so now it's part of that argument. And he's basically saying, if you say the resurrection's not going to happen or no big deal, why are you doing this practice where you're being baptized for somebody who's died before they could be baptized if they're not going to be resurrected one day? doesn't mean he's condoning it. He's just describing something that they're doing. Here's a, another illustration that maybe help you understand that. Imagine you're talking to somebody about whether prayer makes a difference or not, whether prayer is efficacious, whether prayer, God answers prayers. And as you're talking to them about it, they're saying that God doesn't really answer prayers. But then you find out that they are in a habit of praying for dead relatives who've already passed away and they're praying for them. And you might say to them, if you don't think prayer makes a difference, why are you praying for these dead relatives? It doesn't mean you're affirming their practice of praying for these people who've already died. You're just saying that seems inconsistent. So it could be that that's what he's doing. He's pointing out an inconsistency in their, in their practice, uh, but still to support the resurrection. That's a possibility. Another option. For means in honor of dead believers. In honor of. It's a slightly different nuance of the word, but it's one that we, we use it in English that way. So an example would be uh, Michael Jordan. When he won his fourth championship in 1996, his father, who he was very close to, had passed away a couple years before that. As he, his father had passed away between like championships three and four. So this is the first championship he'd won after his dad had died. 
And in celebrating, he said, this is for my dad. This is for daddy. Well, what did he mean there? He meant this was in honor of my dad who passed away. We use the word for that way. And that could be how it was being used. We know there was a practice that had developed within a couple centuries of this in the early church that when somebody was baptized, they would take the name of a departed believer, maybe who'd been martyred, um, but a prominent kind of faithful believer who'd already died, and they would take that person's name, sort of like they were being baptized in their honor, for them, if you will. That fits with some historical accounts. We don't know if it went back as early as this time, but it could have. So that is one option. It's being done for them, as in, in their honor. It's still their own personal faith. They're still trusting in Christ themselves. The baptism is still a reflection of that, their own faith. It's just this nuance of, in some way, they're honoring a dead believer who'd already passed away. That's a possibility. Third, for means in place of dead believers, not the on behalf of that we already saw, but in place of. This is during a time when there was great persecution. People were coming to Christ, being baptized, and often intense persecution after that to where they would die. They'd be martyred for the faith. And yet others were continuing to come. Others were continuing to come to Christ. They would trust in Christ. They would be baptized. And it's like they're filling the place of those who'd already passed away. They're being baptized for them. They're taking their place. And that fits with the argument about the resurrection because essentially he's saying, if we don't think there's a future resurrection, why are we engaging in this losing battle where there's soldiers that are dying, soldiers of the faith in a sense, these believers that are dying, and that there's new ones coming and taking their place? That doesn't make sense unless we have a resurrection hope and that we'll be resurrected, in which case it is not death to die, as we just sung. Uh, we'll be resurrected one day. Those are, all, those are all legitimate options. I lean towards this fourth one. The others, though, I think you know, could be legitimate options. This fourth view would say that for means because of a dead believer's witness. So believers have, have passed away, but, but their confident hope in Christ, their trust in Christ, even in the face of death, made such an impact on the living that they ended up coming to Christ themselves and were being baptized because of or for these other believers who'd already passed away because of their influence. One of the reasons I think this is a strong position is because we see this uh, today still. We, we see this anytime there's a funeral of a believer and the gospel is proclaimed and we point to their faith in Christ, even in the face of death, as, as an example of trusting in Christ. And people hear the gospel and they're swayed by that person's faith, even in the face of death. And they themselves end up coming to Christ. It is because of or for them in some way. Imagine an aging parent who is a believer and yet their children are not. And, and right before they die, perhaps literally on their deathbed, they, they tell to their child, I, I love you. I want you to be with me in heaven. I want to wrap resurrected arms around your neck one more time in the future. Will you please consider Christ? And, and the child who's been hardened and perhaps walked away is in that moment softened. And they do consider Christ. And they sincerely turn to Christ. That would be an example of this. Here's, here's one such example. A couple years ago, there was a young man uh, 
named Tyler Trent, who was an uh, avid Purdue football fan. Uh, he lived uh, near Purdue, and he loved to go to their games. And at 15 years old, he developed a really serious form of cancer that ended up taking his life at 20. But his last couple years, he became kind of a, a celebrity figure among Purdue sports because of his devotion to their football team and their, their hope in them, and even in his state with cancer, camping out to get tickets to games and making sure he could be there. Uh, he ended up being featured on like ESPN, uh, College Game Day. Uh, Scott Van Pelt, who's a major ESPN commentator, went to his funeral and talked about him. Uh, he was kind of placed into prominence because of his struggle with cancer and his devotion to this team, and he was a strong believer. And he used this as a platform to proclaim Christ so that even in the face of death, as he was at, in the hospital, this is what he wrote on his door, on his hospital door. God is holy. I am not. Jesus saves. Christ is my life. It was a four-point summary of the gospel that his pastor had been teaching to the people in the church. It was a way to, to declare the gospel. God is holy. He's perfect. He's good. I am not. I'm a sinner. But Jesus can save. Jesus died for me. He can save. I just need to trust in him. And, and now Christ is my life, even if I lose my life. And he did die. And, and yet, in his dying... Thousands upon thousands heard the gospel. Who knows how many responded. That, that would be like an example of this, of people who came to Christ through the dying faith of a believer. That is a possibility. I lean towards that because it so well fits with what we see in reality. Now, somebody might say, you can imagine a, maybe an LDS person interacting with this, saying, well, see... Since we don't know for sure what it means, can't, can't it mean what we do? Can't it be talking about our practice of you know, proxy baptism on behalf of people who've died so that they can hear the plan of salvation and, and respond? Can't it mean that? And I don't think so. Even though we maybe hold loosely those other options, just because we can't say for sure what it does mean, I think we can say for sure what it, what it doesn't mean. And, and so that's what I want to talk about briefly here. What can't it mean? What can't it mean? As we look at the interpretation of our LDS friends, they would say this. This is what it's referring to. This is from their own website. By performing proxy baptisms in behalf of those who have died, Church members offer these blessings to deceased ancestors. Individuals can then choose to accept or reject what has been done in their behalf. So they would take this as it's being done proxy in behalf of those who have already died, and it gives them another opportunity to hear and, and respond. Now, does this verse that we read disprove this? No, because it's only short, right? All it does is describe baptism for the dead. It doesn't prove it, and it doesn't dispute it because it just describes it. Their system is informed by all sorts of other writings and things that they kind of add this meaning to. So the problem I have with it is not so much just what verse 29 says, because it is brief. It's as we take these ideas, we see that they're inconsistent with other aspects of Scripture. 
And so we look at other aspects of Scripture and we say, can't mean this. Because it contradicts the rest of Scripture. And I'm going to give you three ways in which it does. Uh, The first is that Scripture says there's no opportunity to repent and believe after death. That, That all during life, it's an opportunity, come, come, come. But that that door closes at death. Hebrews 9, 27 would talk about that. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. That there's death, and then our fate is sealed after that. There's, there's judgment for those who've rejected. We see this illustrated in the, the account that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus. We won't go there for the sake of time, but you're encouraged to, to look it up later if you're not familiar with it. In Luke 16, 19 to 31, where these two figures had died... One, Lazarus, although he was poor, is, is described as being in paradise. But the rich man is, is not. He's suffering. And he's aware of it. And he, he's told that that, that gap is, is fixed. That there's, there's no opportunity to repent at that point. That adds a seriousness to this life. And the decisions that we made for or against Christ. A concern uh, on the part of Mormons that would lead them to this view, one thing, is that is, that is that fair of God to do that? Is that fair of God to not give another opportunity? And I just think we have to stand with what the Word says. And what the Word says in Romans 1, for example, is that, that God has revealed himself through creation, and then in chapter 2 of Romans, through conscience. Creation and conscience to every person And so there's not any person across the globe and throughout history that could not see those things revealed from God. And yet, this response of our heart is to reject, to reject, to suppress. We see this in Romans 1.20. It says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And chapter 2 goes on to talk about the conscience as well and that we've rejected what he's revealed about himself in creation and we've suppressed our conscience. And, and that's what we're held accountable to, what we're, what we're judged for. And so we, we can't, out of a desire to provide some second chance, distort what's in Scripture. We have to trust in the God of all the earth who will do right. Genesis 18.25 So not the judge of all the earth deal justly? We have to trust it to him to do what's right rather than come up with some other plan that contradicts what he's revealed. So the first is there's, there is no opportunity after this life to repent and believe according to Scripture. Second is a different view of baptism. Baptism is a response to the gospel, not a, not a step towards it or something that opens up this way. What we see with baptism over and over again in the New Testament is somebody believes and they're baptized. They believe, they believe, and they're baptized. For example, in the book of Acts 2.41, so then those who had received his word, they believed they were baptized. We see that pattern throughout the book of Acts. We see in Acts 36, a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch, here's the gospel, responds, he points to this water, and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, if you believe, you may. Baptism is it's always a, it's a response to belief. It's a declaration of belief. It's a declaration to others that, that I'm trusting in Christ, I'm following in him, and I want the world and I want the church to, to know. 
And, and so this practice is inconsistent with that. Third, baptism is, is not necessary for salvation. It is important. It's an act of obedience. God calls us to be baptized. And, and yet it's not something that saves us. We're saved as we, as we trust in Christ. We're, we're saved as those, those four elements that Tyler Trent wrote on his door of God is holy, I am not. Jesus saves. Christ is my life. We're, we're trusting in him and him to, to save us, turning from the sin that made it necessary, trusting in him. And that's how we're saved. And then baptism is a declaration of that. It's the way we say, this is what I'm trusting in. It's not something that saves us in itself. Uh, somebody might point to uh, 1 Peter 3.21, though, and they, they wonder, because it seems to say baptism saves us. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And yet notice that Peter immediately clarifies what he means. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying it's not this act, it is the appeal to God for a good conscience, which is what we're doing when we're trusting in Christ. We're saying, I don't have a good conscience. I've violated it, I've sinned, and yet I'm trusting in God, even though he's holy, that he gave this substitute. And that Jesus died and was resurrected for me, and so I'm trusting in him, I'm appealing to him for a good conscience, and baptism is a way to declare that. Classic illustration, and perhaps given by God to us in Scripture, just for this reason, to show the appropriate place of baptism, would be the thief on the cross, who simply while on the cross next to Jesus, ends up going from mocking to trusting in him, believing in him, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, and then he died. Without being baptized, without doing good works, he, he died. And yet Jesus says, today you will be with me. So my concerns, my disagreement, is not over just verse 29, because it simply describes something. It's with the inconsistencies with this practice to all these other related areas that it end up being being contradicted um, with the way it's being practiced in a, in a Mormon temple. All right. It's a loaded issue, isn't it? Right? And so I wanted to talk about it kind of up front like that. I know there's perhaps some of you here that have ongoing questions on that. Um, perhaps you're an LDS person that somebody invited you and you think, man, of all Sundays to come, right? This is the one. Um, and you maybe have some objections that I didn't cover. I tried to hit some of the main ones, but perhaps you have some that I didn't cover. I would, I would be very happy to talk to you afterwards to set up a time that works for you and, and walk through any other questions or concerns that you may have. But I want to remind you, for all of us, as we're walking through this, this isn't just a puzzle to solve. It's a point that he's making. And the point is that the resurrection justifies our hope. And however we take this for one of those kind of four ways I walk through, or if there's another one that fits better, the point is we can have hope in the face of death because we know that we will be resurrected with Christ one day. Two more things. These next two we'll go through more quickly. I wanted to give most of our time to that one for obvious reasons. But what we see next is that the resurrection motivates our sacrifice. It motivates our sacrifice. Verse 30, he says, Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
still on this theme of the resurrection, he says, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, why am I putting myself in harm's way? And, and Paul was. He was suffering as he was taking the gospel to hostile places. He was, he was risking death. He was in danger every hour. And he says, if there's no resurrection hope, why am I doing this? Why not just eat and drink for tomorrow I die? Why not just maximize pleasure now? And he said, the implied reason is, because it is not death to die. This is not the end, that one day we will be with God, and not just in a fuzzy sort of state I can't imagine, but with resurrected bodies on a renewed earth. And he says, with that in mind, risk is right. Risk is good. Even if it ends in my own death because of it, it is worth it, because the gospel is worth it, and the hope of the resurrection confirms it. This most directly applies then to missionaries who are taking the gospel to a a hostile, risky place uh, or believers that are living in a hostile place like that. And and for a missionary wanting to go there, they might hear from your families, why? You're putting yourself at risk. Why not just stay where it's safer? Why, Why go? There's people that need Jesus here, right? Why not just stay? And for centuries, really, the response of missionaries has been, it's worth it. And, and the needs are severe overseas. One, uh, one missionary from about 150 years ago who encountered that was a man named John Patton. This is a little biography on him by, who I don't know if I'm going to pronounce the name right, Paul Shellline. Um, and in, in Patton's case, as he was preparing to go to a South Sea island to, to share Christ with them, what he heard from people was, there's, there's cannibals there. And there were. The group of people that he was sent out from, uh, believers in Scotland, I think it was, they had just about two centuries earlier lost somebody who was sent to this same region to, to cannibals. And so somebody brought that up to him, and I love his response. And I want you to note the, the resurrection kind of language in here. One dear Christian saint cried, The cannibals! You will be eaten by the cannibals! To this, Patton replied, this is Patton's own words now, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. He says, we're all going to die. But if I can go honoring Christ, bringing the gospel to these who need it, I'll, I'll be resurrected just like you one day. So that risk is right. It's appropriate. And in fact, many others did die in this same venture. Earlier in the same biography, they quote from a, another missionary to the same region, the New Hebrides. And this man, J. Graham Miller, uh, this is what he says. I was now clear as to my duty to provide the New Hebrides Church with the record of God's work in the planting of his church there. I calculated that the blood of more than 100 martyrs and missionary pioneers had been shed to bring our church into being. They were brown missionaries from Polynesia, black missionaries from Ancetium, Ifat, and Naguna, white missionaries from Canada, England, and Scotland, where they laid down their lives in loneliness and apparent failures There is today a living church comprising more than half the population of the New Hebrides. 
says that risk is right. They, many did lose their lives, and yet the Lord used that. And so the point here he's saying to the Corinthians, and then the challenge to us is, is that in vain? Is that a wasted life? Well, if my whole life is about squeezing as much pleasure from these few days as possible, then it would seem to be wasted. But if my hope is in eternity and a confident hope in the resurrection, then it's not wasted. It's worth it. So that's where this fits in. And even says not just the loss of life, but the challenge and different obstacles. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Probably not literal wild beasts, although some Christians were martyred by being sent to wild beasts. But if that's what he's referring to, he probably would not have survived it, and it wasn't something they did to Roman citizens. So it's probably not literal. It's probably more a way of talking about the opposition he experienced at Ephesus, which is where he was while he was writing 1 Corinthians. He received great opposition Verse, uh, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verse 9, he says there were many adversaries. A wide door for effective service, but many adversaries. And he's saying, basically, not just danger, but opposition. You might not face danger, but do you sometimes face opposition for the gospel? Is there sometimes a tendency to maybe just kind of want to shrink back, like, ah, I don't want to get into an argument I don't want to hurt this relationship. And so we kind of shrink back. Well, this isn't to argue for being rude in those and being abrasive, but it is to say that sometimes it's worth risking and stepping into a, a, a lengthy discussion that is kind of wearisome because the gospel's worth it and because of a hope of the resurrection. Our own sacrifice is worth it. And then the third point he makes in a related way is to say that the resurrection encourages personal holiness. It appears to be an abrupt turn, right? He's talking about this practice of baptism for the dead. He's talking about um, personal sacrifice. And then he says, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So he goes from the resurrection and sacrifice to like pure pressure. Like That seems to be a bit of a jump. But in the context, it fits. Because what he's pointing out is that their practice of denying the resurrection, they're doing that essentially to justify some sinful practices that they're wanting to find a theological loophole for. And, and this is what essentially that probably came down to. This was a, a view that the New Testament authors were having to wrestle with. People saying basically that the physical body is, is bad. And God doesn't really care what we do with our physical body. It's the heart, it's the mind, it's the spirit that matters. The physical body is just going to die and be done away with. So it only matters what we do on the inside. But whatever we do with the body is fine because we're not going to have any use for it in the future. So they would use that to justify all manner of sin that's done with the body. And he's saying, no, God cares about not just what's on the inside, but what you do with your whole person. And so don't look for a loophole to justify sin because you say the body's just going to pass away. No, God cares about your body so much that he will resurrect it one day. So don't try to find a loophole around this. It makes sense if that's the argument, then why he has to deal so much with sexual sin in this book, right? We saw in chapter 5, dealing with incest. We saw in chapter 6, dealing with prostitution and sex outside of marriage and homosexuality. And we saw in chapter 7, marriage and divorce and misuses of these things. And it makes sense if their idea is, ah, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It's irrelevant. 
No, they're finding a loophole to justify that. And he says, don't do that. God cares about what you do with your body. Don't be corrupted by the company you're around. Even flat out says, stop sinning. Stop sinning. It doesn't mean that that's the gospel, stop sinning. The gospel is what we saw earlier in chapter 15. Christ died for our sins, was buried, raised. We trust in him, we're saved. But he says, now for those that have been saved, don't look for an excuse to justify sin by denying the resurrection. Walk in obedience now. We sometimes look for loopholes today, don't we? Ways to justify things that we want to do. Maybe it's something like this. Ah, God only really cares about the inside. It doesn't matter the words I use or what I do with my body. It might sound something like, I'm saved by grace, so I can just keep doing what I want. God's going to forgive me anyways. Or it might say, ah, some people interpret this particular passage, whatever it might be, differently. And so since some people interpret it differently, maybe we don't really know what it means, so maybe I can just do what I want. I will assure you guys, if there's anything that you want to find a loophole around and you go online to see, does somebody take it different? You can justify anything with the Internet. Anything, right? You can find somebody who comes up with a view that just enables you to do what you want and get around the clear teaching of Scripture. This passage essentially says, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't look for some loophole. Walk in obedience now. Okay, what's the big idea? It's three chunks. Feel somewhat disconnected. First one kind of loaded. What's the big idea here? Big idea is simply this. Our personal hope, personal sacrifice, personal holiness are reasonable if God raises the dead. They are right. They are reasonable. They are appropriate if God really raises the dead. If he raised Jesus from the dead, showing that the gospel is true, if he will raise us from the dead one day, then hope in the face of death is appropriate. Sacrifice, whether it's just wading into difficulties now, whether it's sending overseas, whether it's supporting those that are overseas, whether it's going overseas to a hostile area, it's right, it's appropriate. Maybe reasonable still, but it's right because of resurrection hope. And then, then third, personal holiness you can be motivated by this truth as well don't just live for this blip this brief life live for the long tomorrow in these three ways here but in every way let's pray